day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. My guest today is Eric Euless, author of D.B. Cooper, The Definitive Investigation of Sheridan Peterson. Eric is confident he solved the case and has even personally spoken to Sheridan Peterson several times. Eric also put together the 2018 D.B. Cooper conference that was held in Portland Thanksgiving weekend. He's a smart guy and I had a lot of fun hanging out with him. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with my friend Eric Euless. Let's go ahead and get started, Eric. Let's get started with how did you end up on D.B. Cooper in the first place? Well, I've always been fascinated with aviation, and I think I first heard about D.B. Cooper, I imagine in the late 70s, probably around the time that the money was found on Tina Barr, and it just seemed natural primarily because the nature of the crime was one that involved an airliner, a jet airliner. And I've just been a big fan of, of aviation as long as I can remember. And um, so that's where I initially heard of Cooper, to the best of my recollection. And of course, in later years, the grand mystery of it all, everybody wondering who D.B. Cooper is or was, is fascinating in and of itself. And uh, I think that's where it all started for me. And then your investigation into Sheridan Peterson, where, when did that start? That started about 10 years ago, and it wasn't an investigation into Sheridan Peterson. It was actually an investigation into D.B. Cooper. And, you know, I'm one of those people that is pretty much a no-nonsense kind of guy, have a very little tolerance for BS and conspiracies, theories, and things of that nature. And... I suppose it's inevitable that in any large case, for example, the JFK assassination, that you know, there's always going to be conspiracy theories around it. And so it stands to reason that the same type of thing is going to exist with D.B. Cooper as well. But you know, I'm somebody that have, has been interested for years, and I would read up and try to see you know, if there was anything new with respect to the case. And about 10 years ago, I reached a a level of some frustration because it just seemed to me that there was a lot of conflicting information and a lot of it just seemed to be ridiculous. So I decided that I was going to undertake an investigation of my own. I was going to spend some time and try to, you know, see what I could learn about the case. And, and ultimately that morphed into me deciding in earnest that I was going to try to solve the mystery, try to solve the case. And I I thought it was likely that D.B. Cooper was no longer alive uh, at that point, and I thought it was also unlikely that I would ever name a suspect. But nonetheless, I figured that I was going to take a, a four-point approach to it. 
the first thing that I was going to do is I was going to try to ascertain the facts, figure out what was fact and, and what was fiction. And there was that alone is very difficult. Yeah, there's a fair amount of fiction out there, uh, but there were some things that, generally speaking, people could agree were facts. And then I also wanted to take a look at some of the new evidence as well. Obviously, Tom Kay and his group in seven or eight uh, had the tie looked at, and they discovered various particles and things of that nature. So they, they that, that was an important part of the investigation as far as I was concerned. Anything that I was going to do had to factor in the new evidence and how that dovetailed into any prospective suspect. Then um, beyond that, uh, I figured I would create a, a, a profile. I wanted to create a suspect profile because there were things about this case that really bothered me. In one respect, it seemed like Cooper was very knowledgeable, highly intelligent. But on the other hand, there were things that he did acting giddy on the airplane, childlike in the words of Florence Shafter when he received the ransom, which didn't make sense. The fact that he had a clip-on tie that cost a buck and a half from J.C. Penney didn't make sense. The cheap attache case didn't make sense. So he was sort of an odd mix of person, and also given his age and so forth, plus the realization that he never got caught told me some things as well. So studying that new evidence was really the third prong of my investigation in terms of having a dovetail into creating a suspect profile. And then finally, I believe that the real D.B. Cooper was probably on the FBI's radar already. We've all heard of those cold cases that end up getting solved 20, 30, 40 years, 40 years later with the advent of DNA, for example, only to find out that the person who ended up being arrested for the crime was somebody that the law enforcement had been aware of for years. So I thought it was very likely that the real D.P. Cooper was actually buried in the FBI files as a suspect. They just couldn't put all the pieces together. Because, again, their job is to come up with a prosecutable case. And they've got a pretty high burden to meet there. So, um, and with the uh, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, and all the new files and so forth that had been released, I figured by focusing on those first three points, again, studying, trying to ascertain the facts, looking at the new evidence, coming up with a suspect profile after I had all of that, I would then review the FBI files and see if anything caught my eye. And of course, these were heavily redacted files, but nonetheless, there was something very specific I was looking for in terms of a suspect. Not real, not, I wasn't really sure I was going to come up with anything, but I figured that's the way to go about it. And how long ago did you get your hands on those? Um, the FBI files, I would say I started looking at those in earnest probably within a year and a half, year and a half ago or so. Okay. And, um, uh, it didn't take long before something caught my eye. There was one suspect in particular that caught my eye, and the files were redacted, so I didn't know the person's name. However, there was identifying information. I knew that he had graduated from Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa Junior College in 1949. I knew that he graduated from University of Missouri in February, which is an odd month to graduate, but February of 1954. 
Um, I knew that he worked at Boeing. I knew that he had obtained a DOD clearance. I knew that he had a degree in journalism or writing. Actually, I believe it was English, but uh, there were a number of things that I did know that I knew it wouldn't take much investigation on my part to eventually put a name to this person. And uh, But I set that aside momentarily and continued to review FBI suspects to see if there was anybody else that piqued my curiosity, and there wasn't. I ultimately came back to this then unnamed person and contacted both Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa Junior College and also the University of Missouri and obtained copies of their graduation lists for the respective years. I figured that if there was the same name on both lists, that was my person. And uh, sure enough, it took a couple weeks, uh, but sure enough, once I received both lists, I looked and there was one name common to both lists, and that was a gentleman named Sheridan Peterson. And had you heard that name before? I had heard the name before. Uh, it's a name that had uh, I wasn't very familiar with, but I, I recall having it having crossed my, my eyes and my mind at some point. Um, and, of course, I did an, a Google search immediately and realized that he had been talked about primarily on the forums, the drop zone, and, and I think even the uh, D.B. Cooper forum to some degree. But nothing really much. Uh, there was also a lot of conversation about the fact that he had his DNA tested or compared in 2003 and that had come back negative. Also, Sheridan Peterson has blue eyes, and Cooper is commonly referred to as having brown eyes. So I thought, well, maybe this isn't the person, but nonetheless, it was still intriguing. But really, the most fascinating thing is I found out that the guy's still alive. 92 years of age, he's still alive today. And, of course, that's thrilling because uh, it's a whole different story when you have the, the prospect of actually talking to the suspect and trying to, to, to glean information from him. Oh, yeah. The yeah. fact that, that he's alive makes it so much more interesting. Yeah. And uh, so to go a little bit further with this, Everything seemed to match. Uh, I knew that he had obtained a job at Boeing as a technical editor, as a writer, basically, which made a lot of sense to me because, remember, I was sort of torn when I was trying to figure out what DB, who D.B. Cooper was in the sense that he seemed to be very bright in some respects, but there were also some very... Uh, unpolished aspect of his, aspects of his character as well. So it, it didn't strike me that he was a, you know, a high-paid CEO of one of the divisions or, or directors of one of the divisions or something like that. So I figured, you know, here's somebody that perhaps he writes for the company newsletter, perhaps he's a technical editor, perhaps he's with their public relations department, something other than, you know, a high, uh, an engineer, you know, something other than that. So, again, somebody who was familiar with Boeing had access to information and was obviously leveraging, utilizing his education, but, um, you know, probably wasn't making the kind of money that some of the engineers and so forth are, are making there at Boeing. So that made a lot of sense. But there was obviously the problem with the DNA in particular and also the eye color. And so I started looking into it. I, I started investigating the DNA and figuring out um, – you know, where this had come from, that he had been cleared. And um, the further I looked into it and explored, I realized that, in fact, he had not been cleared by virtue of his DNA, uh, that this was actually a rumor that he, Sheridan himself, started in 2007 in an article that he wrote 
for a Smoke Jumper magazine. He talks about being interviewed by the FBI in 2003 and so forth and, and all that good stuff. Why in 2003? Well, that's an interesting thing, and I actually I really should point this out, that Sheridan first became a suspect within one week of the, sky, of the hijacking. Within a week, there was at least one person, and I believe two individuals, that had reported Sheridan Peterson's name to the FBI. They interviewed his ex-wife in California, Bakersfield, California, and obviously investigated him. But all they knew was that uh, he was overseas. In fact, his ex-wife said, yeah, that sounds like something Sheridan's capable of doing. Uh, But they had no way of getting in touch with him. They knew he was overseas in in Asia somewhere, but they didn't know where. And if you look at the files, it's also obvious that there's so many suspects flooding in on on a regular basis Plus the fact that the agent that was tasked with Sheridan Peterson's file in particular was in the process of transferring to another division, I just think it fell through the cracks. It was just easier for the FBI to kind of put that file aside for a while and focus on the new suspects that were coming in. So to make a long story short, believe it or not, it took 32 years before the FBI finally, for the first time, sat down and interviewed Sheridan Peterson, and this was in 2003. Oh, that was the first time the FBI had contacted him. That is the first time the FBI had contacted Peterson. Peterson had actually been out of the country almost the entire time until 1999. He lived all over the place, all over the place, moved around from the Middle East to Papua New Guinea to Hong Kong to Vietnam to Nepal, all over the place. Uh, Had been to China, had been to Japan, had been to to Russia and the Soviet Union back then. Um, so he had been all over the place and apparently they were having a hard time. I don't know how diligently they were looking, but nonetheless, they were having a hard time, you know, figuring out where this guy was and how to get a hold of him. But, uh, apparently in 2000, they were going through some old case files related to, uh, the DB Cooper case, Norjack. And, uh, of course there was this new DNA evidence that they had procured from the tie that they were reasonably confident was D.B. Cooper. There's a few samples on there, but there's one in particular that was derived from saliva. They felt like that was likely D.B. Cooper's, even though it was a partial profile. It wasn't a complete profile. It was a partial DNA profile. But with that in hand, armed with that, they started looking at additional files, looking at files and reviewing uh, suspects. And there was one person and one person alone that they identified that they wanted to talk with and get a DNA sample from, and that was Sheridan Peterson in 2003. The do only have, person. Do you have any idea how they came to that conclusion? Uh, I think that they were probably looking at the stuff that we all had looked at in terms of his time at Boeing. He was a, a expert skydiver. Uh, his image, they had a, his picture is strikingly similar to the you know original db cooper image that we that we see everywhere oh, it very is. similar so and there are a lot of things that added up and along those lines and all, he met all the physical characteristics he's six foot one 180 uh, 185 pounds i believe at that point 175 185 pounds fit 44 years of age at the time of the hijacking uh plus Ironically, there's a picture of him in the Boeing newsletter from 1962 where he's actually wearing uh, a suit and a skinny black tie with a parachute on emulating or or kind of showing what it'd be like to be 
parachuting. <laughs> I don't did, know if I've seen that picture. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 actually a very famous picture of his. It, and the reason why is because the Boeing newsletter was doing uh, writing an article about this Boeing skydiving club, which Peterson happened to found uh, in 1962, yeah, 1962 or 63, and uh, it was a Boeing newsletter uh, company newspaper newsletter that that featured this picture. They had they dragged him out to the parking lot and said, "Hey, why don't you you know you know show us what it looks like to make a turn in the air with, with your parachute and all that kind of stuff." Uh, so that's the picture that looks an awful lot like D.B. Cooper. But having said all that, they finally managed to to uh, hook up with him in 2003 in Santa Rosa, California, and uh, asked for a DNA sample, which he initially refused to give. He argued that it was an infringement upon his civil rights. And, and of course, in, in my uh, report that I write about Peterson, I talk about that it's not an infringement upon his civil rights at all. They're certainly entitled, that is, the FBI is entitled to ask anyone to volunteer a sample uh, and eventually relented and gave the sample. And then, uh, according to Peterson, a few days later, uh, the FBI agent came back and assured him that the DNA wasn't a match. Now, I've talked with this agent, Mary Jean Fryer, many times, and that is not the truth. Uh, she did not uh, <laughs> tell him that it that it didn't match. And you know, and not to mention, these things don't come out after one or two days. It takes a while to process that stuff. But the thing that's notable and very interesting here is there have only been three people, three suspects that we're aware of that have ever had their DNA compared to the D.B. Cooper partial profile. And that's Dwayne Weber, uh, Joe Weber's husband, and obviously a lot of uh, uh, media attention surrounded Dwayne Weber uh, around 2000 and a little bit beyond 2000. Then, of course, there's L.D. Cooper, who came on the, the scene uh, because of his niece, uh, Marla Wynn Cooper, in 2011. Uh, and I know there's a lot of pressure for them to compare the DNA of L.D. and Dwayne, and then obviously Sheridan Peterson as well. The, the fascinating thing is that the FBI has publicly stated, they have publicly cleared both L.D. and Dwayne Weber by virtue of their DNA tests. It's out there. The FBI said it didn't match, so those guys aren't aren't Cooper. They have not said the same thing about Sheridan Peterson. And obviously, uh, part of my research has involved on multiple occasions communicating with the FBI and trying to get them to either clear his name or, you know, not clear his name, whatever the case may happen to be. What's and, their response? Uh, basically, that that of because of privacy matters, they really can't talk about it, and they don't normally talk about suspects that type of thing and i even pointed out the fact that you know hey you guys cleared the two other guys and you, and and they're not alive anymore so presumably they really couldn't care what their dna results were sheridan peterson on the other hand is still alive and you've been unwilling to clear his name so uh that that caused me to believe that the fbi and it's obvious that the fbi strongly suspects that peterson may have been cooper but they just simply can't prove it. I mean, again, their job is to come up with a prosecutable case with the evidence. Whether they think he did it or not is really irrelevant. They got to come up with the the evidence to support it. So, in fact, all this talk about Sheridan Peterson's DNA clearing him was baloney. In fact, it was just the opposite. It appeared to incriminate him. 
And then, of course, there was the matter of the blue eyes. That's sort of the next thing I looked at because Sheridan Peterson has blue eyes. And uh, I also I realized at that point that the FBI actually wasn't certain what his eye color was because there was only a very brief moment in time at the very beginning where one of the flight attendants, uh, Florence Schaffner, had seen him without his eyeglasses when he initially handed her the note. She thought he was making a pass at him and, you know, stuck it in her pocket and everything else. Um, and you'll see that the very first uh, information they put out with respect to uh, D.B. Cooper, which was either the night of the skyjacking or the next night, you know, said he had brown eyes. But then shortly thereafter, within a few days from that point forward, they've listed his eye color as possibly brown. So it's clear that they're not sure. And if you dig deeper in the files, you'll also see that while working with the sketch artist, she also said that she couldn't be certain about various aspects of his eye. Presumably his eye color is part of that as well. So, Because, of course, D.B. Cooper wore sunglasses essentially the entire time, except for the very beginning before he actually hijacked the jet. <laughs> so uh, so that really resolved that as far as I was concerned, the eye color. And then, of course, as time has gone on, uh, I've actually communicated with Sheridan. I've talked with him on the phone. I've texted him. I've emailed him. And there are a number of things that uh, are very suspect and incriminating uh, that have led me to conclude that I, I think he's likely D.B. Cooper. How does he handle that? Because he was on the, the History Channel uh, documentary in 2016, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, he was on there for, I don't know, 90 seconds and just kind of laughed about it. It's not me, but... Well, he actually never says it's not me. Uh, he's never admitted to the FBI that he wasn't Cooper. If, uh, if you talk to Mary Jean Fryer or anybody... Anytime they've asked him, he just kind of shrugged it off and chuckled. Or I think on the show he said, uh, you know, "I'm a good guy." You know, he, did, he never resp- he never actually directly answers the question, which is very interesting. Uh, but it took some coaxing to get him on the History Channel. I mean, I know the backstory of that, and it took a lot of work to get him to to appear on that. I on was that surprised show. to see him appear on that because I had heard his name before. Um, and I knew he was alive, but all I knew is that he was like a cantankerous hermit is yeah. kind of the reputation that I had heard before. So when I saw him on the show, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, he's got a very uh, fractured personality. I'll put it that way. He's even described himself as really having two parts of his personality. And, and there's there's too much to get into in, in this interview. Uh, I discussed some of it in, in, in my uh, report that I wrote. Um, about him, which is 135 pages, the definitive, it's called D.B. Cooper, the definitive investigation of Sheridan Peterson, uh, which is where all this ended up. I wrote a 135 page report and kind of walked the reader through how I got involved and everything and ultimately how I settled upon Sheridan Peterson and a lot of the evidence. But yeah, he initially, I think, was willing to discuss it publicly uh, in some respects, but then, frankly, I think the it just got a little too hot in the kitchen for him, and he's just shut down. And, uh, I mean, occasionally he'll, you know, I have a very difficult time communicating with him now. I actually uh, had a little spat of, of some emails back and forth with him uh, two or three days ago. Um, but he, he has a tendency to be very rude, crude, offensive, <laughs> you know. Uh, but... Um, you know, but it's interesting. And I think part of the reason why is because there's a lot, 
you know, there's a lot of stuff out there as I've investigated him and I've interviewed his ex-wife and, and other people, the FBI agent and looked at evidence and so forth. There's a lot of things there that point to him. And one of the chapters in my report is actually dedicated to sort of Sheridan's quote unquote, bad luck, his, his inability to come up with an alibi. I mean, again, if you think about it, now here's a guy who was accused of skyjacking an airliner and you think that would be a relatively easy thing for the normal person to come up with an alibi. You were either at somebody's house for Thanksgiving or you didn't meet the physical description or you know, you didn't you know, you didn't you weren't working in a place where you're going to get titanium particles on your tie. You know, whatever the case may happen to be, but it just seems like one thing after another whether it's that or the DNA or what have you, everything always somehow miraculously ends up pointing to Sheridan Peterson as, as let me put it this way, you can't discount the guy. Right. And uh, there's just too many things there. Everything from opening up uh, numbered bank accounts while he's living in Nepal. Because basically, I'm jumping ahead here, but the point is that during the time of the skyjacking, he, was li- he lived in Nepal. He lived in Nepal from... August of 1970 to March of 1973. Obviously, the skyjacking took place in in uh, November of 71. And uh, he told the FBI that he was in Nepal the whole time for two and a half years, by the way, with no job. And he doesn't dispute that. In fact, the FBI asked him about that. How did you support yourself? You didn't have a job that in time and never came up with a satisfactory answer. Um, but that said, uh, I proved unequivocally that he actually did leave Nepal during his time there because in communication that he had with a friend of his, which I have, he actually admitted that he opened a numbered bank account in 1971, ironically. And anybody who knows anything about numbered or secret bank accounts, you know, the only reason you open those kind of things is you want to hide money from somebody, from the government, from the authorities, what have you. Plus the other thing is that usually requires a pretty healthy amount of money to open a numbered account. I mean, you're not going to walk up to your local Swiss bank and, and plunk down a thousand bucks and open a numbered account. I mean, it requires an awful lot of money. Nowadays, it's north of a million bucks. So back then, it was a significant amount of money. So the important thing here is that in order to open that account, he had to actually do it in person. So that immediately destroys his alibi that he never left Nepal, not to mention where are you getting the money to open a numbered account and where are you getting the money to travel and do these kind of things? He had two children that were born in Nepal. He had a wife that, you know, lived in Nepal with him, uh, which is a whole nother part of the story. But, uh, that, that's one of the very incriminating, highly suspect pieces of information is that numbered bank account. Uh, but there's an awful lot more in addition to the numbered bank account, the DNA, you know, the inability to come up with an alibi. Uh, one of the things I looked at was when the tie itself was manufactured. I determined that the tie was manufactured in either 1963 or 1964. And there were a couple different ways I went about that, looking at patents that were related to the tie and also the, the JCPenney logo on the tie, which just happened to go into use in 1963. So I narrowed it down to 63 or 64 that the tie itself was manufactured, thinking likely 63. Again, bear in mind, he worked at Boeing from 62 to 64. So dovetails exactly during the time he was at Boeing. 
Uh, his wife told me that he was a shopper at JCPenney. That's where they would go shopping all the time was JCPenney, his ex-wife, I should say. Um, so, you know, everything that I looked at or have looked at over the years just invariably somehow points to the guy. And some breaking news here for you. Uh, I've talked a little bit about this in the last maybe week or so. Part of my investigation has involved talking with his, his ex-wife uh, and through my discussions with her and through her other members of the family, uh, it's come to my attention that his, he, he, he had a Filipino wife living in Nepal who apparently passed away about 1977. The FBI obviously wanted to speak with her when they interviewed him in 2003 because she's the one person who could kind of shed some light on what was going on back then especially an ex-wife yes and but but you know this this is you know because he has the ex-wife and then he has the filipino wife that's in nepal well the filipino wife apparently died in 1977 and sheridan tells the fbi she's no longer alive passed away in about 1977 in the philippines apparently caught pneumonia and passed away well on discussions recently with his ex-wife and also other members of his family through the ex-wife, it's come to my attention that as far as they know, she's actually still alive. The Filipino wife is still alive. And this is based upon a couple of people in the family that have had conversations with his, he has a daughter with this Filipino wife who was born in Nepal and Sheridan himself. Sheridan actually visited with his ex-wife, the woman with whom I uh, had the conversation with uh, about 2010, 2011. It was, she, he actually came over to her, her house and they had a conversation and her son was there. Their son was there as well. And she talked with him at that time about the Filipino wife coming back to the United States because, of course, she's under the impression that she's alive. The Filipino wife is alive. And uh, he said that he had mentioned to her that the problem is that you know, she wants to bring the whole family over, and that's why she really can't, this, that, and the other thing, which doesn't really make sense to me. But the big story here is that my understanding is the Filipino wife is still alive. That's a very big problem for Sheridan Peterson if he's telling the FBI that she passed away in 1977 because she's a material witness at the time. So I actually reached out to the FBI agent, again, Mary Jean Fryer, and verified that he, in fact, told her that the wife had passed away and she said, yes, that's a felony. Even in an informal setting, if you tell the FBI something and you're lying, you're knowingly lying about it, that's a felony. So uh, I actually passed this nugget of information off to the FBI office in Seattle uh, recently, expecting, of course, to hear, thank you very much, Mr. Euless, for your interest in the case, but it's closed. Unless you find a $20 bill or the parachute, we don't want to hear from you anymore. <laughs> but as it worked out, uh, they did notify me, and they said that it's being passed on to their investigative team. So presumably, they're looking into this. And that is a big deal because one has to ask the question, why would he lie about her? Why would he lie about that? And then when you look at the DNA well, and everything else. if he's else, scared of what she'll say. Well, yeah, but, I mean, the point is, is, you know, she's the one person that can provide, again, shed some light on what was going on because part of the problem with Sheridan and his and his quote unquote alibi is he was living in, as he puts it, a mud hut with no electricity, no running water, and no heat 
in the middle of Nepal at the base of the Himalaya mountains, at the base of the Himalayas. So there's there's just there's no way to prove where he was or wasn't or anything else. And again, you know, <laughs> that's a big problem. Uh, what about his kids? Have you talked to them? I, I briefly spoke with his son who was born in Nepal. Uh, he actually asked me to call him back a few days later because I caught him at work. I called him back a few days later and my number was blocked. I've been unable to get a hold of him. It was obvious to me that he ended up talking to his father and his father shut him down. I haven't tried to talk with the daughter and there's some reasons behind that. I'll probably leave that alone. But it's clear that Sheridan's trying to control the narrative and uh, he expressed to me in this, this last series of emails from a few days ago that he was very upset with me that I had talked with his ex-wife and also that I had talked with his son, his, his younger son, also goes by the name Sheridan. Oh, an, an interesting thing, by the way, a side note here, peeping off, people have often speculated where did the name Dan Cooper come from. Uh, well, it is an, an interesting thing that Sheridan Peterson, he goes by the name Pete, which is obviously an abbreviated form of Peterson, isn't it interesting to note that an abbreviated form of the name Sheridan is Dan? Perhaps that Dan comes from an abbreviated version of his first name. Just a side note there. Just something to kind of chew on. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an awful lot to the guy that is is very incriminating, very suspect. And like I said, in this kind of a setting, it's difficult to lay it all out on all of it out on the table. But there are a number of things that that point to him. And I, I never set out. I've said this to people before. I didn't. I don't have a horse in this race. I didn't. You know, it's not like I had somebody in mind, and then I'm trying to prove that this guy's DB Cooper. I actually did it the exact opposite. I looked at all the inf- all the evidence, all the information, all the data, came up with the suspect profile. I came up with kind of what my idea of D.B. Cooper was, and I tried to see if anybody, any of the evidence or anybody fit that, any of the suspects fit that. And, of course, I came up with Sheridan Peterson's name. I have earnestly tried to disprove, to prove that he isn't or wasn't D.B. Cooper. I have been unable to come up with anything. There is nothing that I can point to at all. Even something as basic as his as him saying that he's not D.B. Cooper. Even the most basic thing, there's just nothing out there. And he's still a suspect today. He's still a suspect today. When that FBI agent talked with him in 2003, it was her and her partner, they left him for the, when they got done interviewing him, she told me that she turned to her partner and said, we may have just interviewed D.B. Cooper. Here's an FBI agent who's been working for the FBI for, at that point, something like 20 years, who just got done interviewing Sheridan and turns to her partner and says, we may have just interviewed D.B. Cooper. That tells me, as the eyes and the ears of the FBI, she's the only person from the FBI that's talked with them, so any 302 is going to be from her hand. That tells me that whatever he said... It was far from convincing her, i.e. the FBI, that he wasn't he wasn't Cooper. And in fact, she actually showed up a little bit later because she, as the word is, she smelled a rat. Something didn't add up to actually interview him some more. And I've talked with her extensively, and I can tell you there's, <laughs> at least as far as she's concerned, she's not at all convinced that 
he wasn't the man. And that's saying something. That's really saying something there. And that's, you know, everything that the FBI has, again, she's the eyes and ears of the FBI at this point. So everything that they have basically is, is from her plus the DNA test. So, yeah. Let me ask you this. Can, is it possible that he could sue you? You know, I don't appreciate you going public with information saying that I'm Cooper. I'm obviously not. Um, no, I don't think it's possible. Uh, you know, obviously we've, we all enjoy certain freedoms here and freedom of speech is one of them. And, um, but can you accuse someone of a crime? Well, I think that there's nothing, it's, it's common for, you know, people to, regardless of, you know, there's a lot of different, I mean, the president of the United States himself does this kind of thing, but <laughs> I, actually I shouldn't say that because actually I consider myself much more thorough as far as that's concerned. But the point is, is that, uh, I use a lot of his own words and his own stuff against him. I mean, it's reasonable for me to deduce if you're lying about this, that, or the other thing, it's reasonable to deduce that that's highly suspect and it makes you look guilty. And I've straight up asked him point blank specific things, and if he doesn't want to answer, he won't answer. He himself hasn't even come out and you know hasn't even said to the FBI, hasn't come out and said, I'm not D.B. Cooper. He kind of beats around the bush and he implies and so forth. Uh, he even toys with people about it in a sense, but, uh, you know, I, I, it would be a mighty tall hill for him to climb. Let's put it that way. Um, for him to be suing anybody over this. And again, at the end of the day, I firmly believe that he is likely Cooper. I think it's highly improbable that he's not. And this isn't me just pulling this out of thin air. This is there's an awful lot of evidence, admittedly circumstantial, which is what you're going to have at this point in time after mm-hmm. nearly 50 years. There's an awful lot of evidence pointing to this guy, and he's either the unluckiest person in the, on the planet, or he's the man, because there's just way too much stuff pointing to him. And there are a number of other things that are very incriminating with respect to the tie bar and things of that nature that, that I go into in, in my report that I discuss other specific, I think, material pieces of evidence, circumstantial evidence that, that point to him. So um, I've seen absolutely nothing to convince me that, uh, that he's not D.B. Cooper. And frankly, there's not a heck of a lot that I've seen that makes me even hesitate to think that. Um, so... What do you think his motivation was? Money. I asked him that. I asked him what he thought D.B. Cooper, the reason D.P. Cooper did this, was it you know, for some kind of political statement or whatever? Because you've got to remember the times that this happened. This happened in the early 70s. You've got you know Vietnam. You have the assassinations of JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King Jr. A lot of crap going on. The civil rights situation, uh, war battles, rights, that kind of thing. Uh, and I asked him about that. And it was interesting because he immediately said money. He said he didn't do it for to make a statement was for the money. So it was interesting how adamant he was and how just on the ball he was with respect to that. Um, so I think it was for the money. And, you know, here's the guy who had been out of work uh, at that point, year and a half, didn't work for another full year after that. He's had literally dozens of jobs for one year, two years, and he gets fired, moves on to something else. 
He's a very interesting and fascinating person uh, with a very spotty and sporadic work record. But uh, at the same point, he's had the resources somehow to, to travel all over the world and drag his kids with him all over the world. I have no idea how they were educated. I don't know where they went to school or whatever, but, you know, obviously this costs money. But that said, you know, it's, it's also likely that he didn't get, you know, it's possible that he only got a portion of the money uh, because I, I believe, I know at some point he learned that the FBI was looking into him because they had interviewed his wife within weeks of the skyjacking. And uh, I'm reasonably confident that shortly thereafter it got back to him somehow in Asia that that's what was going on. And you can imagine if he, you know, if he's actually D.B. Cooper, he's living in Nepal, he's thinking, hell, these guys will never figure out who I am. The next thing he knows is, you know, first I accidentally left the tie on the plane. I think that was an accident. The second thing is... He was is, careful with everything else. Yes, exactly. So I think that was... Uh, he made a mistake there. Because uh, he got the notes back. Yeah. And the the used matchbook. And, uh, and you know, he took the attache case with him and everything else. So uh, I think it was an, an error on his part. And I think it probably caused him some, uh, you know, anxiety when he realized that when he landed. I think he probably caused him some, some anxiety with respect to... Uh, that and then to learn, of course, at some point in time, shortly thereafter, presumably that the FBI was hot on his trail. Sheridan strikes me as the kind of guy who would say, "You know what? It's just not worth it." I mean, if the money was buried or sitting in a safety deposit box or in a numbered account or whatever, he would just leave well enough alone and just leave it at that. I don't know that he would ever try to spend it or or do much with it. I don't know. That's just speculation on my part. But uh, but the money could have easily been spent. I mean, I've I've actually inquired. Uh, I've talked to the FBI about that because there's been a lot of talk about, well, the money never re-entered circulation. They don't know. It's entirely possible it did enter circulation. They just would never know unless somebody actually took the time to compare the, manually compare the numbers on the bills with- To a list. Yeah, yeah. I I agree. I don't see that they could have traced every $20 bill. There's no way. There's no way. There's Especially if it was overseas. If it was overseas, there's absolutely no way. But even within the United States, it's possible if- you know, it wasn't spent in one mass sum that uh, that it could have all been all slowly but surely entered the uh, entered circulation again. But by by working through a, a numbered bank account and uh, that type of thing, that's a very simple way to have it re-enter circulation. You've got the money and you're good to go. But obviously, six thousand dollars of it was found on Tina Barr, so it wasn't the full amount. So, but uh, what do you think of that that money? How do you think that money got there? Well, I mean, anybody who's familiar with the D.B. Cooper case knows that that's a very hotly debated uh, subject. Um, yeah, I'll tell you what I think, because obviously I looked at the f- the flight path and Tina Barr and, and all these other things, and I'm of the opinion, uh, Robert Nicholson, uh, who goes by the, the name R99 or scream name R99, very bright man, uh, I believe aeronautical engineer, pilot, uh, uh, I think he's retired now, did an extensive amount of research on the flight path and looked at the FBI redacted files, radio transcripts, and he's of the opinion that the FBI's flight path is somewhat askew, and therefore the drop zone is also incorrect. 
And I have to say, given that it's been nearly 50 years and nobody's found the damn thing, that seems to be a pretty strong indication that Cooper didn't land there because you would have thought they would have found something. Uh, but they've found absolutely nothing. But to get back to, to R99, uh, he postulates and, and actually puts together a very compelling argument that at a critical point when it is believed that the plane slightly turned to the uh, southeast, uh, Robert says that the plane just continued to fly south in a straight line, and that straight line would ultimately put him over the western suburbs of Portland, uh, which ironically, that's where the some of the other aircraft that were supposed to meet Flight 305 were supposed to join up was in, in the western suburbs. But the, long, the tall and short of it is that he believes that it flew in a straight line, which ironically puts him right over Tina Bar. And if you actually match the time, because it's believed that Cooper jumped about 8, 12 p.m., it's also right near Tina Bar. So I believe that that's accurate. I actually believe that the FBI's drop zone is incorrect. I also think the flight path around this Portland area, which they had him kind of, kind of the jet making a curve to the left and then curving to the right and then literally flying right, flying right over downtown Portland. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And we know that the guy who was watching the radar screen uh, was also tasked with trying to coordinate the other aircraft to meet up with Flight 305, the chase planes and that type of thing. So he was working on other things. It wasn't like he was just peeled on watching 305 the entire time. But having said that, uh, I think it's, I believe Cooper jumped out very and landed very near Tina Bar. I believe he survived. I don't think that that was his original plan. And uh, I think he buried the money. I think he buried the stuff on the in the sandy beach, which is pretty easy to do. Uh, and then at a later point, retrieved it. And it's important to remember that the money showed up in a in a satchel, a bank satchel, just a bag that you couldn't close on the top. And it was chock full. I mean, it was basically completely full. So um, when he landed and if he unraveled it and everything else and dug a hole and laid that in the hole, certainly sideways, I mean, the, the money can easily kind of flow out a little bit in the hole. And I'm theorizing that at a later point, whether it's one week or one month or whatever, came back and retrieved it probably at night. Obviously, you're not going to be doing this in the middle of the day. Uh, that that a few of the bundles just accidentally got left behind, and ultimately, with beach erosion or whatever, those are the three bundles that were discovered there on Tina Bar. I, I believe that Cooper originally intended to to bail out over Seattle, over the suburbs of Seattle. I think there's a lot of evidence that indicates that, uh, such as asking for the rear stairs to be down. On that's takeoff. part of it. That's part of it that he wanted the rear stairs to be down upon takeoff, and then ultimately you know, to have them lowered immediately after takeoff. That's part of it. The other thing is the fact that you have to ask yourself, what was Cooper's backup plan? And what I mean by this is we know he was the actually the second to the last person to board the jet here in Portland. And presumably he wasn't, certain he was actually going to hijack the jet, go through with it until he actually stepped on the jet. I mean, if he would have walked on board the plane via the air stairs, that's how they entered the jet, was ironically through the same stairs that he left the jet. And if those back rows 
had passengers sitting there, you know, presumably Cooper would have, you know, moved up a couple rows, have taken a seat and have just aborted the, the, the attempt to hijack the jet because it makes sense that the threats, the people who could interfere, you would want all of that in front of you. So I argue that Cooper wasn't absolutely sure he was going to hijack the jet until he walked on the jet and realized, hey, the back row is actually empty. I can sit in the back row and keep all the threat in front of me. So you have to ask the question, if he stepped on the jet and he couldn't get a seat in the back row, he had to be somewhere more in the middle of the plane or what have you, what was he going to do? I think he would have just flown to Seattle and would have just departed in Seattle. And I think if he was going to depart in Seattle, what was he going to do at that point? I mean, I think it's it makes sense to me that he probably had a hotel room lined up or had a home there or something lined up in Seattle whereby if he had to abort, he could just get off and he could just go to his, his place and and try try another day. So that makes it a all, lot of sense. I've never thought about that. It also makes sense, too, concerning the air stairs thing, that if he bailed out over the suburbs of Seattle or, or the exurbs of Seattle, that'd be very easy for him to, you know, walk out and go home. Because also there's been a lot of hay made about what he was wearing, you know, the, the raincoat and the black, the, the suit and the loafers and everything else. Well, if his plan is to bail out over the suburbs of Seattle, that makes a little bit more sense because he walks out and he's in the suburbs. You know, he maybe lands a little bit in the woods, but walks out and works his way home and changes his clothes and does whatever he does. Because remember, he didn't bring any kind of luggage with him. And presumably, he'd want to have a change of clothes, doesn't want to walk around in D.B. Cooper attire after hijacking a jet for very long. Right. So... Uh, that makes sense that he would already have something staged, you know, a, a place with a suitcase or fresh clothes or whatever there. That makes a lot of sense. But also, you know, if, if his plan was to bail out over the woods, well, then his choice of attire becomes very suspect. So my point is that him wearing the raincoat and the loafers and everything else makes a lot more sense if you're planning on bailing out in the suburbs of Seattle, it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense you're planning on bailing out in the middle of the woods. That doesn't make any sense. So uh, that's a critical that's a critical thing to remember there. And um, there was actually one other point that I was going to bring up with respect to that, which uh, happened to slip my mind. But, you know, having said all that, I, I, I oh, I know what it was. A lot of attention has also been uh, paid with respect to the flight path. You know, hey, fly... Fly to Mexico City, they agree on Reno. So, you know, he goes to Reno, but he gave them no indication on how to get there. You know, he had very specific information about the flap settings and things of that nature, which strongly imply that he had a lot of knowledge about the 727, which points to a Boeing employee or former Boeing employee. But I argue that the reason he didn't pay any attention to the flight the, the, how they got to Reno or whatever is because he didn't give a damn because he knew he was jumping out right over Seattle. So what does it matter? You know, he's going to stand on the back of the jet and when he sees the, you know, the lights start to fade of Seattle, he jumps and he's in the, in the suburbs and they can fly to Reno any way they want. Now, the reason he didn't do that is because there was a problem with the money. The money didn't show up in a knapsack. It showed up in an open top bag, which he spent a lot of time trying to secure that. And the other thing was the door itself, having to have the air stairs up and it had to have a lower and he had some problems with that. So that window, that opportunity to jump in the suburbs of Seattle evaporated very quickly. And by the time everything, he got everything in order, I mean, it was long gone. Seattle was long gone. And I think he just sat in the back and looked for the really the first 
cluster of lights, you know, and he probably had a pretty good idea that they're going to be flying back over the Portland area, Vancouver, Portland area. And once he saw that jump there. So basically the exurbs of Portland, Vancouver was the alternative to the exurbs of Seattle. And that's why when he lands, I believe near Tina bar, he's not where he originally intended on landing, but he knows he's got to get out of there. He immediately buries the stuff. And again, this guy was a former smoke jumper and everything. So he's, you know, and so, I mean, you know, he's used to lugging stuff and all that kind of crap and dealing with burying, you know, digging and burying and chopping and all that good stuff. I think that's what he did. I think he buried the stuff, uh, you know, somehow figured out how to, you know, I don't know if he rented a car or what happened, <laughs> but eventually came back and had the benefit of watching the news for a few days probably and seeing where they thought he jumped and, and retrieved all the stuff and the rest is history. That's that's my theory about that. I like that because that does make sense. You know, you want to jump out right away. He asked for the stairs to be down uh, on takeoff and he didn't care where the plane flight. I had yeah. never thought about that before. He didn't. Yeah. He asked for very specific flight instructions, but not where they were going. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And, you know, and by virtue of acts, you know, asking, you know, I guess ordering the flap setting at 15 degrees, which was unique to the 727 and some other things, uh, there's an awful lot of, of evidence that suggests that D.B. Cooper was very familiar with the 727. Uh, and of course, Sheridan Peterson, our man Sheridan Peterson, you know, was also very familiar with 727 because he was, as a technical editor, was working on the documents and stuff related to that jet. Also, to touch base on some of the newer evidence, for example, what the Cooper Research team, Tom Kay and his group have come up with, you know, the stainless steel, the commercially pure titanium particles, the rare earth elements, and so forth. These are things that were discovered in, in 2008, 2017, and sure enough, again, point to Boeing. I mean, if anything, that solidifies the argument that it was Boeing or something very close to Boeing, uh, especially in the case of the, the commercially pure titanium, which was pretty rare back in 1971. So all of this stuff as time has gone on, even the newer evidence, just, and even disregarding the, the knowledge about the 727, but the newer evidence also seems to dovetail nicely with Boeing. But, I mean, the fact that, you know, Cooper was aware that the air stairs could even be deployed in flight is very important and interesting because uh, there have been a number of pilots that that, um, I personally, but I have talked with other people that have talked to pilots about that flew back then and so forth, and to a man, they've said that they had absolutely no idea that those air stairs could be deployed in flight. In fact, the pilots of Flight 305 had no idea that the stairs could be deployed in flight. They weren't sure if the plane was going to crash, you know, if it was going to be like a big flap and it was going to nosedive into ground. They also didn't know if it could actually be deployed, I, you know, because you would think that there would be a squat switch or something along those lines that detects when the plane is no longer on the ground, which locks all that stuff um, but Cooper knew. Cooper knew that those things could be opened in flight. Otherwise, if he didn't, he he just guessed, which is hard to believe. And as one person put it, he's basic. If if they couldn't open, if those stairs were locked and they couldn't open in flight, he would be walking into an aluminum jail cell with no way out. 
And Cooper was far too bright to do that. He knew that he could get out. He knew that they would open. He knew that that jet could fly with those things open, and he jumped. It's another very important piece of evidence that indicates that he was very familiar with the 727, which, again, points to Boeing. Well, didn't Cooper ask the girl who sold him his ticket if the flight was a 727? Uh, it was actually a male that sold the ticket uh, in Portland. I've heard that, but I don't know if that's the case. I do know that there were two airlines. There were only four airlines that, that had flights from uh, Portland to Seattle. There was Western Airlines, there was Hughes Air West, there was United Airlines, and there was Northwest Orient. Those are only four airlines. Western and Hughes Air West did not fly the 727. Western later flew the 727-200, the extended version, but they didn't have the 100 version. Uh, United and um, uh, Northwest did, did have the 100. And I know, uh, I'm not certain, I think, I think United may have flown the 100, the 727-100 up to Seattle. Uh, but the point is that there were there were only his options were really quite limited as far as, as that is concerned. Uh, but I'm pretty sure because that was public information uh, in the in the booklet, I believe in some case. Uh, I'm pretty sure that yeah, I mean he would have to have known before he chose 305 that that was a 727 and and that was a jumpable plane. So yeah. Let me ask you uh, something else about about Sheridan. He wrote an autobiography of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, and that's another very interesting piece of uh, the puzzle here. He wrote a book, which apparently he started writing in the Paul called The Idiot's Frightful Laughter, which he told me is 95% accurate and 5%, uh, you know, writer's creative choice or whatever you want to call it. Um, and there are a couple, so it, it largely recounts his time in, uh, leading up, you know, leading up to Vietnam, his time in Vietnam and briefly touches upon the Paul. It end the book ends very interestingly with the main character who is Sheridan, uh, parachuting out, uh, giving the pilot, uh, five $20 bills and parachuting out into enemy controlled territory, uh, but the point is that there are a number of, inter- if you read the book critically, there are a number of interesting things that seem to correlate with with D.B. Cooper, the D.B. Cooper story. And not to mention, D.B. Cooper famously said the phrase, no funny stuff. That phrase is in Sheridan's book. D.B. Cooper also famously said, let's get the show on the road. That phrase is also in the book. D.B. Cooper famously said, no fuss. The word fuss is also in the book. So there's common phrases that D.B. Cooper used that Sheridan Peterson also used, and uh, which is highly suspect. But it's interesting because he got the book online. He started selling the book online, and, and he's argued that this is very important that he gets the book, you know, makes it available for people to read and to learn about what Americans, what the Americans did in, in the Vietnam War and so forth. Um, and it was about that time, shortly thereafter, I want to say 2008, 2009, where some people on the drop zone, somebody got a copy of the book and started speculating, started saying, hey, some of the stuff seems to kind of correlate with D.B. Cooper. I mean, this is interesting. And just 
miraculously at that point, bingo, Sheridan pulled the book off of the virtual bookshelves. You could no longer buy it anymore. And one has to ask the question, why Why would you do that, Sheridan? I mean, you know, you've he's talked openly even for many years after that, that event that, you know, it's very important that he gets the book published and out there and for people to read it. But when he, just as the book started to sell and people started noticing some similarities with Cooper, all of a sudden it's no longer available. Uh, so that's highly suspect as well. One other very important thing to remember here is the, the lead case agent was Larry Carr for a number of years. He's the guy who actually opened up a lot of this the previously uh, secret information regarding the Norjack investigation. He opened it up to the public and invited sleuths to get involved and so forth. But he was the, the lead Norjack agent, what there was of Norjack uh, from, I want to say, from 7 to 10, 20, 2007 to 2010, I believe, something like that. Uh, Sheridan told me that about 2009 that Larry Carr uh, reached out to him and started communicating with him and actually bought a copy of his book. Sheridan told me that Larry Carr did not identify himself as an FBI agent. And, I mean, there is the possibility that Sheridan's wrong, that it wasn't Larry Carr, that it was somebody else. I've actually reached out to Larry Carr and said, hey, I'm trying to verify this. If it's wrong, let me know. I can pull it out of my report. But I, he hasn't responded. So read into that what you will. But if Sheridan is to be believed, and there's no reason not to believe the guy, Larry Carr was actually hamming up and, and exploring and talking to Sheridan Peterson as late as 2009, which is very interesting because this is years after the DNA was taken in 2003, which is the first thing. And it's also very interesting because it was about the same time that Larry Carr disappeared off of the forums as well. He no longer talks on the forums. He's no longer present on the forums and so forth. So, Do you remember what Larry's screen name was on yeah, the forums? Secret. Yeah, C-K-R-E-T or C-K-R-T or something like something that. Something like that. Sounds right. Something to that effect, yeah. But that's, that's a very interesting and tantalizing clue as well because a big part of this in investigation is is not only trying to ascertain the facts and try to figure out who, you know, what happened. A big part of it, by my estimation, is trying to figure out what the FBI knows and what the FBI thinks they know. You know, I mean, they obviously know the results of these DNA tests and these kind of things. So it's 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 of interest to find out where they are, what what exactly they know. Uh, so that's part of it. So when I hear things like that, uh, Sheridan telling me that Larry Carr was communicating with them. And not telling him that he was a uh, an FBI agent, in fact, the FBI agent, <laughs> uh, it's <clears throat> it's definitely suspect. That said, um, and he didn't identify himself as an FBI agent on the according form. to Sheridan. That's the case. And and again, I've tried to reach out to Larry on a couple of occasions, s explaining to him, you know, trying to get verification or something, and there's just been nothing that's come back. So I'm just going with Sheridan on that. I mean, that's what Sheridan told me happened. You know, you know. I mean, I'm, I know it did happen. I know something happened. The only other possibility is maybe Sheridan thought it was somebody. You know, somebody else was Larry Carr. But, but that is an, an it, it tantalizing, you know, part of the story as well. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, back to his book. Have you read his book? I've read. 
a significant amount of it. A lot of it I've just thumbed through because it dealt with this time in Vietnam and it just, it's very heavy. Uh, it's pretty brutal. There's a lot of parts that are, you know, there's a lot of uh, just brutal stuff that goes on there. Uh, so I very kind of quickly skimmed through those parts. Uh, there are some other parts that I'm more interested in, specifically parts that relate to the character's time in Nepal and after Nepal, you know, how the book ends. There's talk of uh, a Swiss numbered bank account in the book. There's a part dedicated to that, which is an interesting correlation with the numbered bank account that, that Sheridan had, had has revealed as well. Uh, and then there's also converse, you know, there's parts about the skydiving cause he was involved with the, the, uh, Saigon skydiving club, believably, un- unbelievably rather they, they actually had a, a skydiving club in Vietnam that was active sport skydiving club, uh, active in Vietnam during the war and Sheridan was part of it. And, uh, that's wild. Yeah. It's unbelievable, but it's the truth and it's been verified as the truth. So there've been a lot of stories that Sheridan has, has recounted, told and, and so forth. And every single time we've looked into him, whether it's myself or somebody else, we've been able to verify that that actually happened, even when it was really outlandish. So, when Sheridan says something, you can pretty much believe that it's true that it happened. I don't want to. I want to, but I want to clarify something because there have been multiple times where he hasn't been honest. But it's always when he's trying to conceal some aspect of the Cooper case. Did you know about this? Oh, I didn't know much about it. You know that type of thing. He acts as if he knows very little about the Cooper case, but then it's obvious that he does know an awful lot about the Cooper case. So, uh, so I've caught him lying in those kind of situations, but when it comes, but I've never, I'm unaware of him ever boasting untruthfully, saying, "Hey, I did this," and he actually didn't do it. If he said I did something, you can bet your bottom dollar he did it. <laughs> no matter how remarkable the story is, you know, sport jumping during the Vietnam War or witnessing the Tiananmen Square massacre or being in Iran when the Shah fell. I mean, I don't care what the story is. It's the truth, and it's it's an unbelievable story. The guy has led an unbelievable and a remarkable life, that's for sure. If someone wants to read his book, is there any way for someone to do that? Well, there is... Um, there's been an awful lot of activity surrounding that lately, my understanding is that it is currently available on lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, uh, The Idiot's Frightful Laughter by Sheridan Peterson. Uh, there was uh, one other person, uh, and, I'll, and I'll leave the person's name out of it, that, that was really kind of the driving force behind making Sheridan's book available. Uh, you know, for those who are interested in buying it, it's it's a heavy read. Uh, it's very it's obvious to me that it hasn't been edited well because there are, I've I've run across a number of errors in the book. Words just you know words that are this the wrong word and, and things of that nature. Words that are left out. So and it's not a short book. No, it's I want to say it's a I think a little over four hundred pages in its current form. Um, but it, it is interesting, and for someone like me who's 
very knowledgeable about Sheridan and very knowledgeable of of the Norjack case. I'm looking for specific things, just certain things that I'm I'm interested to see if they're in the book because I know it is essentially an autobiography. So, for example, when I first heard about the the bank account, the numbered bank account, the first thing I did because I only had a portion of the book initially. I have the whole thing now, but I looked at it initially. Uh, to see if there was any reference to a numbered bank account. And sure enough, bingo, there's a whole chapter related to Swiss bank account. Uh, and some of, and, and it's actually, refer, there are many discussions related to this bank account and it pertains to Vietnam and so forth and uh, money and that type of stuff, ill-gotten gains and trying to conceal and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. What has the reaction been to this, both inside the vortex and outside the vortex? Because you weren't, until recently, um, a name that anyone knew in this yeah. community. Yeah, I mean, I really kind of entered the the vortex, so to speak, probably about a year ago, if even that, really. Uh, and and which was nice, in in a way, it was nice because it afforded me that opportunity to just kind of do my thing and, and uh, have a pretty no nonsense approach to way to the way I've, you know, viewed this entire, my investigation and so forth. So uh, I'll say that there have been a handful of newspaper articles and one of the local TV stations here in Portland recently interviewed me about Sheridan. So there has been some media attention. It's been a matter of some frustration on my part because Sheridan is clearly a very credible suspect. And that's not just Eric Eulis saying that. That's the FBI saying that. Remember, Sheridan Peterson became a suspect within one week of the hijacking. Here we are 47 years later, and he's still a suspect of the hijacking. And he's the only person that they voluntarily took DNA from and all kinds of things. So he is a very viable suspect for a number of reasons, and I've had a very difficult time getting the media to pay attention to it and to take this to take him seriously as a as a viable candidate. On the other hand, there have been some recent suspects that have come up that I think have a, the, 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 it just doesn't add up because again. There's an awful lot we don't know about D.B. Cooper, but there's an awful lot that we do know, too. You know, we're pretty sure that D.B. Cooper knew a lot about the 727. Anybody who's a serious suspect is going to have to answer, how did this person know about the 727 to the degree that he did? Sheridan Peters, or uh, D.B. Cooper was obviously very knowledgeable about sky or uh, parachuting. Well, how did this person be how is this person familiar with with parachuting db cooper was obviously very familiar with seattle in particular there's things that he referenced you know uh, tacoma from the air and, and things of that nature mccord is 20 minutes from SeaTac airport that indicate that db cooper was familiar with the seattle region well how did this suspect how does he tie in with the seattle area db cooper has a tie that has pure t- commercially pure titanium, you know, certain grades of stainless steel, rare earth elements, things of that nature on the tie. Well, how does your how did your suspect, how can you reasonably explain that your suspect got these things on on his tie? Let's assume it's his tie. Again, the Boeing connection in Sheridan Peterson is very clear. I haven't heard other newer suspects adequately answer those questions. 
Not to mention there's the basic physical parameters. You know, the guy was in his mid-40s. The guy was about six foot one inches tall. The guy had a high, you know, receding hairline, you know, but he was in good shape. All things that point to someone who looked very similar to Sheridan Peterson. And some of the other suspects, there's a significant departure from that basic, you know, metric of information there. So that's what I talk about in terms of sort of a no-nonsense approach. Any credible suspect has to answer some very basic questions. And I have have not come up with anybody that has been remotely close, uh, as close to that, answering those questions as Sheridan Peterson. Sheridan Peterson can answer every single one of those questions. I can point to, I can explain every single one of those things. So it's been frustrating that you, I see other, you know, uh, suspects all of a sudden all over the news that I know is highly unlikely <laughs> are, are D.B. Cooper. And, you know, and I think it sucks a lot of oxygen out of the room, quite frankly. And it makes it very difficult to, you know, break through the white noise and the clutter to get a, a man like Sheridan Peterson, a very viable suspect out there. And again, I've written extensively. I mean, I have a, a comprehensive 135-page report uh, detailing the investigation. And, um, you know, so it's, you know, I'm, I think there's a pretty compelling case there. And uh, so it would be nice if, if there was a little bit more attention paid to this, in part because Sheridan is still alive. And I believe that as long as he's still alive, there's always the opportunity for him to cut a deal with U.S. District uh, District Attorney, or not District Attorney, uh, Assistant United States Attorney in Seattle, uh, whereby he comes clean and all the information comes out. In fact, I actually tried to barter an agreement. I've reached out to the uh, U.S. Attorney in Seattle, but you know, nothing has come back. They've just they've just ignored my inquiries. But again, I figure as long as Sheridan's alive, there's still the possibility that. Um, he decides to, you know, tell the story. Obviously, once he's gone, that can't be done anymore. And I do believe that, obviously, if there was a lot of, uh, you know, attention focused on this and him in particular, <clears throat> pardon me, that we would get to uh, we would get to some resolution one way or the other. Either he's, he is D.B. Cooper or maybe something comes out and proves once and for all that he, he wasn't D.B. Cooper, which, which would be a remarkable thing. And it's part of what makes the uh, the recent information about the the wife who apparently died in '77, but may still be alive, and all this kind of stuff. This, you know, hopefully the FBI actually picks up the torch on that and looks into it and tries to uh, figure that out. Because if if it's true that he lied to the FBI about it and that she's still around, um, I have a feeling that may be. That may be your smoking gun right there. It could break wide open at that point. Was she much younger than him? I think she was. I don't know. It wasn't uncommon uh, for for that to be the case, the older men with with the younger women. And if you read in the book, uh, his book, it, there's a character that's him, and, and the, the Filipina wife is, is, is younger. Also, if you just consider his, his kids— his uh, his last child was uh, was a daughter who was born on Halloween in 1972, 
uh, and you know Sheridan in 1972. Sheridan was born in in uh, 1926, so Halloween of of 1972. Makes him uh, 55. Am I doing my math right on that? Or, or uh, no? Well, I, I mean, he's of an you know he's of an age where uh, a woman of that same age to be bearing children, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's not likely. So to answer your question, I, I suspect that she was probably you know 10 to 15 years, if not even more, younger than, than Sheridan. Are you trying to find her? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some things I can do. Uh, you know, obviously, if they got married, there would be a, a marriage certificate, a marriage license. That said, I'm not convinced that they were married. That may not be true. I don't know, but that's part of it. Uh, also, the children's birth certificates from Nepal. I know both the kids were born in Nepal. I've looked into that. Uh, obviously, not just anybody can get their hands on a birth certificate or whatever, but. Uh, I am exploring ways to uh, get information off the birth certificate because presumably the mother would be, you know, listed on the birth certificate as the mother. So once we have uh, her name, and I've tried to get it from the family, but nobody can remember, at least the people that I've communicated with, uh, you know, once we get the name, then obviously it becomes much easier because Sheridan did a favor in the sense that he said that it, it happened in, that she died of pneumonia and was in the Philippines, and I know it was like 1977, according to to uh, to him. So, uh, so it'd be pretty easy to look at death records and that type of thing, and and see if there's anybody that matches. So, and you said you've you've been frustrated with media attention and the fact that Sheridan is you know cagey and not saying yes or no to anything really. How do you want this to end? Do you want it to end with? Uh, while Sheridan's alive, it's him. We have 100% evidence. And do you want him to be prosecuted? No, I don't want him to be prosecuted. Uh, and I actually write that in the report in a couple of spots that I have no interest in anybody being prosecuted. 50 years is a mighty long time. Uh, I don't feel comfortable judging anybody for you know, an event such as this from 50 years ago. Part of the reason I believe that D.B. Cooper got away with it, whoever D.B. Cooper is, is because, one, they didn't do it again, and, two, they didn't talk about it. And if they didn't do it again, it's a one-off event. You know, who knows, you know, what's in a man's heart and mind in terms of, you know, any kind of revelations they had and and how, how they change as a person with respect to that. So I'm not in a position to judge, and I don't feel comfortable judging uh, so to answer your question, no, I'm not interested in seeing anybody prosecuted. I'll even go as far as saying is if I had the smoking gun, if I had a $20 bill, for example, from Sheridan that unequivocally proved it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pull it out of my, I wouldn't pull it out until he was no longer around because, you know, I, I don't want that to happen. Um, that said, it would be nice in one sense for the case to finally be resolved uh, and of course, you know, I'm, I would like to be associated with that, that resolution. I mean, that would be kind of a cool thing. Oh, for sure. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, there is a part of me that, that 
you know, thinks that that would kind of suck in a way also because it, it is kind of cool that <laughs> all we know about D.B. Cooper is the name D.B. Cooper in some sketchy, you know, FBI sketch and, and you know, mysterious evidence on Tina Barr and things of that nature. So, you know, there's a really cool, you know, folklore-ish part of the story that would probably be dispelled to a large degree if and once the real name comes out. Uh, not too unlike, you know, Deep Throat and the Watergate days, and then we figure out it's a guy named Mark Felt, and it sort of lost its luster to some degree. But, um, but, but having said that, you know, I think ultimately I would like, if, if I had my way, there would, Sheridan would agree to cut a deal with the uh, U.S. Attorney in Seattle, which is the office that would prosecute the case, whereby there's an, it's a no jail time plea and he's completely clean. Uh, he's off the hook. But then again, but then of course, you know, he admits to it and, and explains exactly what happened and how it happened. And and I still have faith great. and hope that we actually we actually you know hear the truth of it all, hear what happened and. And again, that's part of the reason that I, you know, really feel uh, pressured in a way to get his name out as much as possible because this guy has flown under the radar forever. I mean, for for being a candidate or rather a suspect who entered the FBI's orbit within one week, it's amazing how long this guy has essentially just flown under everyone's radar. And it's only been recently that things have started to heat up and... Uh, but that ain't going to be around forever, you know. So hopefully, you know, hopefully that, you know, he eventually the opportunity will present itself if he's actually Cooper. And I feel very strongly about that, as I've said, that, that you know, that, that is resolved. And conversely, if he's not, then damn it, let's get, let's, let's get the, uh, as I call it, the silver bullet. Where, where's the silver bullet, Sheridan, that proves unequivocally that you could not be D.B. Cooper? And that'd be, you know, that then we just move on to somebody else. Do you think he's being coy more or less because he has a plan for, you know, I set up with my son or it's in my will that when I pass away, boom, here's all this information. It was me. I suppose it's possible. I don't know. I mean, that would that'd be, it's not, you know, that'd be real speculation on my part. Uh, he's he's a, a rat pack. He saves everything. I mean, he he is very meticulous. He has papers going back forever, and has a lot of words he's written and and things of that nature. So uh, there's a very real possibility that if he was Cooper, that there's something in his papers that that prove it. Whether it's a twenty dollar bill or you know. Uh, you know, plane ticket into Portland on November 24th, and he turned around and hijacked the jet on the way out. I mean, something like that. There's probably, you know, there's a real likelihood that something like that would exist. I suppose there's also the possibility, because he is a careful man, that uh, that there that there wouldn't be anything. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, he's he's an interesting guy. Sometimes he does and says things that are, you know, very interesting and, and if you stop and think about him critically you 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 wonder where where this is coming from i'll give you an example and this is something that we've talked quite a bit about on on the db cooper forum 
Um, when he interviewed with the FBI in 2003, uh, the interview, the FBI agents asked him uh, whether he believes Cooper survived, and uh, he he says no, he doesn't think that Cooper survived. Of course, I don't know why he says that, but you know Sheridan seems to think that he he didn't survive. At least that's what he told the FBI, and he talks in the interview about the dummy reserve, the missing dummy reserve parachute, and mentions that it was daisy-chained inside. And that's a very interesting comment because what he's doing is describing the inside of the dummy reserve, whether it's daisy-chained or not daisy-chained or whatever. He, you know, He's describing the inside of that missing dummy reserve parachute. One should ask, how could you possibly know what the inside of that parachute looked like unless you were actually D.B. Cooper and opened it up and looked inside? And I specifically have asked Sheridan about this. I said, because he outright said it was daisy-chained inside. And I said, how could you know this? And he never responded to my question. And that's not uncommon with Sheridan. If he doesn't like your question, he just simply won't answer it. But I also asked the FBI agent who interviewed, and I said, you know, Ms. Mary Jean Fryer, I said, you know, is, I mean, this this is very interesting to me. I mean, am I missing something here? How could he possibly know that? I mean, is there any other way to read this? And she actually responded, said, basically said, it is very suspect. He's going to have to answer how he could possibly know that. See, unfortunately for, for Mary Jean and her partner, when they interviewed him, him making a comment like that didn't really resonate, didn't really mean anything to them because they're not skydiving experts and everything else. Uh, you know, obviously they didn't understand the importance of that comment. So it just kind of passed over them. But looking at it years later, as I've done, much more critical eye with the benefit of time, you know, I could see that and say, well, well that's an interesting comment. Why would you make that comment? And this is an analogy that I've used. It's as if you were, it's as if the police showed up at your house one day and they said, hey, you know, someone stole a car in the, in the neighborhood. And they said, you know, we want to ask you about that. You want, they basically want to find out if you're the guy who stole the car. And you never really said you didn't steal the car <laughs> is the first thing. But you make an interesting comment. The, the car had an Alpine stereo system in it. Well, the cops, whether they know if it had an Alpine stereo system or not in it, you think they, they would step back and say, well, why would you say it had an Alpine stereo system? How could you possibly know that unless you actually saw it in the car? Right. That's the analogy I, I, I bring forward, and, and, and I, that's the same thing. Because we've been unable to ascertain whether or not it actually was daisy-chained inside, but the point is that's what Sheridan said it was, and the question is why. It's just a very interesting comment that, you know, frankly, I'm the only one who's been really kind of asking about that because I actually believe that may be the smoking gun. Again, the reason law enforcement interviews suspects and asks questions is because they know that eventually if someone's guilty of something, they're going to slip up. They're going to say something they shouldn't say. And I think that that is exactly what happened here in the case of Sheridan. He slipped up. He said something he shouldn't have said. And 
he's largely gotten away with it, which is just an amazing thing to me. Yeah, yeah, 47 years on the run. Let, let me ask <laughs> you this. So you're looking into the case. You're looking at Sheridan Peterson. He's alive. How do you reach out to him? Well, I've called him and I've talked to him on the phone. I've emailed him. Well, and, I mean, I'm sorry, I should rephrase it. What do you say to him the first time you reach out to him? When I very first called him. Was that your first contact, a phone call? Uh, the very first time I had any kind of communication was a, was a phone call. I okay. called him up, yeah. And told him, you know, told him uh, that, uh, you know, who I was and I was interested in the case. And, and at this point, I thought the DNA had cleared him. I didn't, I didn't really, you know, I thought the DNA was negative. It wasn't until later that I determined that that actually wasn't true. But nonetheless, I found him so fascinating, and I, there was enough uncertainty about the DNA where, like, I still need to drill down into this guy a little bit. Uh, but he initially expressed that he was kind of reluctant to talk about it, didn't really want to talk about it, but then he proceeds to start talking about it. And our, we talked for an hour, as I recall, uh, and he talked about a lot of things. Did he, he know you were going to call? No, no, I just called him out of the blue. Uh, and I don't think he didn't, he knew nothing about me and never heard of me or anything else. Uh, so I just called him out of the blue and, but I, I told him, I said, I'm writing, you know, re, re, I'm investigating the DB Cooper case. And obviously your name came up and blah, blah, blah. And one very interesting thing is, and this, re, this also pertains to the DNA on that very first phone call, we were talking about the DNA, and I mentioned something about, you know, I know that the DNA came back negative, whatever. And he actually made the comment to me, well, sometimes those things are wrong. Sometimes the DNA tests are on are not all, they're not completely, you know, believable or something. It was just sort of a passing comment, which was stunning to me. And, I, and in retrospect, I look at it and I think, wow. I mean, that's a remarkable thing to say. He's almost like he knows that it should match, but it came up wrong and it didn't match, uh, which is just kind of an odd, it's just an odd thing to say. Another very interesting thing is that... It's odd to report on the results if there were no results. Yes, but he's saying that he, he was saying that he was told that they were negative, which again, uh, you know, it, it, it did not happen. It did not happen. But um, by saying that, it sort of implies that he, he thinks that, you know, he thinks that he that it that is true where it did happen and it's not reliable or something. I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, maybe it's a situation of the DNA tests were taken in two thousand three. Here it is fifteen years later, twenty eighteen. Obviously he's not in jail, hasn't gone to jail or anything. So he's figuring that, you know, obviously there wasn't <clears throat> there wasn't something that 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 pointed to him. I, I don't know. I'm not really sure. But I just thought that was a very odd statement to make. Have about. you sent him a copy of your report? Yes, I actually have. I sent him a copy of the report, and I've invited him multiple times to uh, point out any errors. If there's you want to, you know, shine some light on. If there's anything you want to dispute or whatever, I've heard nothing back. Nothing at all. The guy's a voracious reader. He reads everything. I know damn well he read the report. If somebody uh, mailed me a report yeah. about myself, I would read it. And he's he has and it has been multiple times where I said, Listen, Sheridan, you know, again, I don't have a horse in this race. I mean, if you're not Cooper, I just assume get this over with and, and prove it to me somehow. But it just 
not a peep, nothing, not a peep. But I mean, but on the other hand, he's he's found time to, you know, send me an email and and you know, kind of give me crap. So, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, he he can be a definitely cantankerous. He can be a very difficult person to work with, or talk to, or communicate with. And anybody who's spent any amount of time with them or communicating or or what have you can attest to that. So, since uh, you released the report. How much of your life has been consumed by this, or even before you released the port? Um, you know, it's it's been a significant chunk. I don't know how to put a time on. I mean, I, I have a regular job, business. I mean, I'm you know kind of I'm I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. I've been involved in a number of different endeavors, everything from uh, uh, creating a televised poker show that aired on Comcast Sportsnet nationwide to writing the DB Cooper, uh, you know, report about Sheridan Peterson and DB Cooper. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to put a, a you know, since I, I mean, the report came out July 3rd of 2018. So, uh, you know, I would, it's probably a good, you know, close to 50% of my time is in one manner or another has, has been spent on, uh, on DB Cooper over the last, you know, several months. And in the, in the past, I think there've been two other DB Cooper conferences, but you actually have organized another one. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, a DB Cooper symposium in 2011 that was organized by Jeff Gray, Jeffrey Gray, uh, who's the author of the book Skyjack. Um, and then I believe in 2013 there was uh, in conjunction with the Washington State uh, Historical Museum or something along those lines they had a DB Cooper exhibit they had there was some kind of DB Cooper you know get together up there and I believe in 2013 but since that time there really hasn't been much and of course there used to be uh, Cooper Days the annual event at the Ariel Tavern in Ariel Washington. Uh, but the uh, proprietor of of that uh, place passed away uh, uh, a few years ago, and and since that time, that there hasn't been a Cooper's Days anymore. No, no event. And you know, I'm I just felt like, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, stuff online, and there's some, you know, there's a one forum in particular, the DB Cooper Forum, uh, where you know a lot of us who are in sort of the Cooper Vortex communicate with each other and it can be pretty brutal at times. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I just thought it would be nice if, if we could get everybody off online, off the internet and get everybody together and, and meet and, uh, have some beers and talk about DB Cooper. And then at the same time, put on a, a conference and, and invite the public to attend free of charge and give them an idea of what's what new has happened in the DB Cooper world, in particular since the 2011 symposium here. That was also here in Portland, so it's been seven years. So, so I started exploring it, looking into it, and ultimately um, decided to do that. So, on the 47th anniversary of the skyjacking, which will be tomorrow, November 24th, uh, 2018. Um, We've we've got an all day conference goes from ten o'clock in the morning to five thirty p.m. free of charge to the public at the uh, Columbia Edgewater Country Club, and uh, we're going to have a number of speakers addressing various aspects of the case because there's you know and there's been a lot that has actually transpired over the last seven years so 
We'll have uh, people talking about the parachutes, people talking about the particles on the tie. We've got four different authors or representatives of authors that will be speaking to four different suspects. Uh, And then we're going to have basically a panel discussion at the end. Uh, where a number of us will you know, talk about different aspects of the case, take audience questions and so forth. And then we'll finish it up with uh, some giveaways, some little things related to uh, Cooper World. And, uh, and the plan is to hopefully have something like this again next year in 2019 and hopefully again another one in 2020 leading up to the golden anniversary big one, the 50th uh, year anniversary of the uh, uh, hijacking in 2021. That is going to be awesome. I appreciate everything you've done for the Cooper Vortex, the community. Um, When you came on the scene, you know, first thing I heard about you was, hey, I have this report. I'm like, okay, I don't recognize that name before. I've never seen that guy post or do anything because I like to think I keep tabs on the world. I don't have a suspect or a theory. I'm more entertained by the community than anything else. Uh, but I do appreciate you putting on this conference. I think that's a really great thing to do. Well, it's actually been a lot of fun. Yeah, let's call it a guilty pleasure, if you will. And and similarly, I mean, you know, with your with the podcast here, the Cooper Vortex. I mean, you know, these types of things, I think, are, are really it's really pretty cool. I mean, it's it's fascinating to think that. D.B. Cooper, 47 years ago, you know, had this plan to hijack the jet and, and bail out with $200,000. He could never have imagined that 47 years later, the year 2018, we would be having this conference here. You would have a podcast. I would have organized a conference. We'd have all these people in town. We're all getting together for some beers later on. People that I would have never met, never had the opportunity to get to know, if it weren't for the single act of this one man 47 years ago, it's in a room. It's a remarkable thing. So, if for no other reason than that alone, I think I can say that there actually has been a silver lining to the Norjack case and the DB Cooper case, in the sense that. You know, we've all got a chance to get to know each other and, you know, and it's a, it's a fun and enjoyable thing to talk about and discuss. And who knows what kind of economic impact we'll have on the city of Portland or the city of Vancouver. Maybe it'll be <laughs> a couple hundred thousand dollars. I don't know. But when all said and done, uh, you know, it, it is a remarkable uh, aspect and byproduct of the hijacking from uh, 47 years ago that I'm quite certain that db cooper had no idea was going to take place oh yeah it's it's an incredible story no one got physically hurt from it and once cooper jumped out of the plane that was it so i mean it's just an incredible story yes it is (laughs) all right eric well i know that you've got places to be do you have anything you want to specifically promote well, I certainly invite people to uh, check out my report, which again is called D.B. Cooper, the definitive, the definitive Investigation of Sheridan Peterson. Uh, you can get it online at thecoopercase.com. Again, that's thecoopercase.com. 
I charge a whopping $9.99 for it, so uh, be prepared to <laughs> whip out the plastic if you want a copy of it. But uh, uh, if you do that, um, I, I email it to you in a PDF format. Uh, it's 135 pages long. And actually, uh, there have been some updates in the last few months. That's the nice thing about having it in the format that I have it in is that if something of enough importance comes along, I can quickly and easily update it. But, oh, yeah. So Good up to 135 pages right now, and, and I uh, I think it makes a pretty compelling argument, pretty compelling case pointing to Sheridan Peterson as, as D.B. Cooper. Oh, like you said, when looking into it, you haven't found anything that says it wasn't him. That's right, and I've tried. I have actually tried, and I've just been unable to come up with anything. All right. Well, Eric, thank you. I really appreciate it. All right, Darren, I appreciate it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Eric Eulis. Be sure to swing by his website, thecoopercase.com, and pick up a copy of D.B. Cooper, The Definitive Investigation of Sheridan Peterson. It's really good. I sure enjoyed it. Make sure you thank Eric if you attended this year's D.B. Cooper Conference and mark your calendars for the 2019 Cooper Conference. You'll find all the links in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or if you know who D.B. Cooper is, you can find us on Facebook at The Cooper Vortex or email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric Eulis for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you to Bryce Blankenagel of Naked Mormonism for all the help and advice. Thank you to my wife, Brenda, for supporting some of my crazy ideas. And thank you to the very talented man who's standing behind the curtain, Russell Colbert. Last but not least, thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex. Mm-hmm.